Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you listening and joining us online, good morning to you also. From hell's perspective, I have a bad attitude this morning. And I don't know why. Amen. Yeah. Well, I do in a little bit. God's been speaking to me a little bit about some of your haircuts. No, he has not. Just, just he's been ministering to me. And so I've got my Jesus muscles on in a big way. This morning, we're going to stand and read in a moment. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 12 through 23. And I'm not kind of breaking up the paragraph at the end because of next week's study. And so it, it should really stop at verse 24, but we're not. We're going to do verse 23. I know you were wondering about that. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The problem is when, when you feel the surge of the Spirit, is it's very easy to get in the flesh. And so please uh, secretly pray for me, so if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. <laughs> Verse 12, Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots, and Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Please be seated. Well, flipping over the table, somebody else felt the surge from the Lord that, that day. The dissatisfaction of Christ. That is the emphasis behind this morning's consideration. And knowing who Jesus is, his dissatisfaction is no laughing matter. It is a big deal. He made his dissatisfaction clear concerning the lack of faith, according to God, that he found in the nation. I'm going to say that in a different way. He made it clear that God was dissatisfied with, with what was happening amongst the people who claimed to be the people of God and were not behaving that way. And his cursing the fig tree, the fig tree that promised to deliver fruit but produced none, his cursing of that tree was a prophetic parallel. It was a parable, but it was a prophetic parallel. Parable. It was real. The nation promised holiness to the Lord. But at this point in their history, they were not producing it. Bringing on themselves the withdrawal from his blessings, which is a curse. All God has to do is withdraw his blessings for it to become a curse. And that is what the fig tree illustrates for us in the whole story. At the very temple of God, from top to bottom, cheaters of the people went unchallenged. They were cheating the people. They were cheating the Gentiles. It is on purpose that he said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. There's reason behind that. 
They were cheating the people in, in, in an unchallenged way till he arrived. And we look now at verse 12. Now, the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. Now, it's Monday. And evidently, he had no appetite when at breakfast, the disciples seemed to have gorged. They weren't hungry. He's the hungry one. Well, what we know of him in the morning is he would rise up early before everyone else and he would pray. His devotional time with his father. We know that because there are other passages where they were searching for him and they told him, we've been looking all over for you. Where have you been? And essentially he's saying, I had to get away from all of you so I could get to my father. They were not offended by that. They learned. Well, they caught breakfast. He was hungry. That's his humanity. Sometimes the Lord chose to ask questions, for example, to get information. It was a demonstration of his humanity, that he is God in the flesh of a human being, that he has imposed upon himself limitations, but he overcomes those limitations through his relationship in the spirit to his father. And so sometimes he demonstrated perfect knowledge of people and events. It was a demonstration of his deity. So we have in Christ this perfect incarnation. And sometimes it's impossible to tell where the humanity stops and the deity begins, but it's all there and it's all indisputable. We should not try to figure out where his humanity starts and his deity begins. We receive it from him. It is all part of the mystery of godliness. Paul said it this way, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he says right after that, God was manifested in the flesh. That is, anyone to say, well, the Bible doesn't say Jesus Christ is God. Well, then you've never read that verse. It says God was manifested in the flesh. And it's not the only verse. Justified in the spirit. Seen by angels preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up in glory. Now, Paul wasn't there to see him received up in glory, but he believed it when the eleven told him it happened. Because there was too much information being validated, swirling around for him to dismiss it. In verse 13, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, there's a lot that the commentators spend time on concerning fig trees. I suggest you go figure it out on your own. There's really not much to say about it. We can say, well, it's March and April. That's about the time it is. It's, it's the time we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It's not the fig season, but there are some little twists and turns to that. If this species of the fig tree has leaves on it, it means it also has fruit or at least edible buds. And that's what he went there looking for. It promised him figs by having those large fig leaves and yet none. I, again, I can keep going on about the fig tree, but uh, that's enough for me. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. So again, the promise without fulfillment, which is what a parallel with the nation. Look how holy we are. We've got the temple of God here. We have the law of God. They promised spiritual light, delivered none. Claims without reality, something all of us have Always, all of we who believe have to be out watching for in our own hearts. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. They're pretending at their Christianity, at religion. They have a form of godliness. But there's no power, there's no evidence that God is in their lives. They're not adhering to His word, not even making an effort. And there are some that are struggling. He's not talking about them. He's talking about the ones that have no intention of conforming to the kingdom of heaven. But they don't mind manipulating you by using that Christian language that we hold so dear. 
Titus says it this way. Well, Paul says it to Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but in deeds they deny Him. And then he adds, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. They say they're Christians, but when you see how they roll, they're not rolling in the way of the Lord. They're rolling in the way of the devil. And even in the early church, this was taking place. Remember, all of the letters in your New Testament deal with God being dissatisfied with the flesh in the church, in the local church, in people that were coming to church, in churchgoers. Some of those churchgoers were very honorable and good. They still had to struggle, though. And there were others that were absolute frauds. Nothing has changed in all these years. He continues and he says, "For oh, let me pause there. I say that because we need to be reminded. So we're not so shocked when things don't go as we expected them. And then become disillusioned and fall into the hands of Satan. Because that's what he does. He gets you to be dissatisfied with some little pebble in your shoes. So much so that you're ready to throw the whole shoe away. And that's not even the problem. For it was not the season of figs. Again, I've commented on this. The uh, absence of figs indicated that the tree was not going to have fruit later. Just like the nation. Just like when he came. Now, the night before, he came into Jerusalem. He looked around at all things. That was Hosanna. They were crying out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he comes into the city. He wept over the city first. And it was his weeping over the city. Heaves of his chest was heaving. It was no mistake that he was crying. You know, you can watch a movie with somebody, and you know, and they're, they're over there trying to hide that they're crying at some touching scene, and you look over, you say, you're crying. <laughs> well, with him, there was no mistake. There was no asking, are you crying? It was out in the open. Well, then he goes into the city, he looks around at all things. He's taking note, and he says, I'll be back here tomorrow to deal with this. When there are more people present. So, there is a difference between growth and fruit. That is, for it was not the season of figs, but it had the leaves. The tree was growing. It wasn't producing. It can grow enough leaves to feed enough hungry bugs, but not grow the fruit to feed the hungry soul. 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, And though I have the gift of Bible teaching, prophecy, the gift of speaking God's word, and it tenses to prophecy, predictive prophecy, we tell the future, there's just singing songs, praises to the Lord, is classified as a form of prophecy. Uh, just reading the word of God is a form of prophecy. A prophetic word. A priest would speak from the people to God. The prophet would speak from God to the people. And that's the basic rule of prophecy and the priesthood. Uh, when we say priesthood, we don't have Roman Catholic priest in mind. We have the Jewish priesthood in mind, which is then in, in, enhanced into a royal priesthood. Kings and queens of the, of the king of kings who are also priests. Well, back to Paul, he says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am Paducas. I am nothing. That is pretty intense. It's supposed to be. He didn't care about your self-esteem. He's talking about how do you serve the Lord? The Bible never cares about our self-esteem, but it does care about us. It's greater. Because if I have God ministering to me, I have all the esteem I need. I can't self-esteem myself. I don't want. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you in time. And so, I don't want to be as a Christian, a big tree with big leaves and no fruit. Verse 14, in response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you 
ever again. And his disciples heard it. He's talking to the tree. You might as well be talking to the tree. Well, I am talking to the tree, he could say. This is his only recorded judgment miracle. And it is a miracle. It demonstrates his sovereignty over creation. It was lost on the disciples only for the moment. They'll get it back. We'll come to that in a bit. Well, that happens with us. Sometimes a verse, a meaning, a, a leading of the Lord is, is lost on us. We're not keeping up with him. And then he gets us to catch up. Israel is frequently compared to a fruitless tree in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 8, Micah the prophet 7, two passages, uh, sections of scripture where these things were made clear. But the fig tree symbolizes the nation of Israel as others, and I'll get into that a little bit. And so here he comes looking for the promised spiritual fruit of the nation, just as he had come looking for the physical fruit. The nation was alive. Politically, it was alive. Socially, religiously, it was alive. Even economically, all of those things were active. All the leaves were there. Just nothing that would provide spiritual nourishment. And not even enough to recognize the Messiah when he stood right in front of them and did miracles for three years. It had nothing to give Jesus except a shameful death on the cross. Like a root plucked from the dry ground, said the prophet Isaiah, owing nothing to its surroundings. He had given a parable on fruitlessness in the past. Remember, he said there was a once a, you know, the, the vine dresser, he was out in the field and the, the, the owner comes up of the vineyard. He said, this fig tree is dead. Cut it down. He says, well, give me a year. He didn't say it was dead. It wasn't producing fruit. He says, give me a year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. And if it doesn't produce after that, okay, fine. We'll, we'll remove it. How about that? I have referred to that in my own life many times. Going through times where just there's no fruit. But Lord, give me time. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. So this tree was more than a parable. It is prophetic. He is telling the future about the nation by what he is doing in the present to this tree. And there's a lot more to this. Just, I'm just scratching the surface. And so his disapproval. He deals it out. But he only does it to this tree. He doesn't do the forest to every single tree. He doesn't curse every fig tree. This one, because it is this generation that he's dealing with. These Jews that are alive and rejecting him, and not every single one. The ones that are rejecting him, yes. It did not go well for that generation of Jews. It does not go well to this day for those who reject him. No laughing matter. The dissatisfaction of Christ... Is nothing to shrug off, and yet most do it. And we are to help them not do that through preaching and through lifestyle, through the leading of the Spirit. And so there it stood in its outward glory. He probably peeped the tree on the way out of the city or into the city the day before. Probably on the way out. He's too preoccupied with the hosannas coming in. But going home that night, you know, there's a fig tree. And in the morning, you know, he had his eyes, his heart set on that. You know, you've had your heart set on maybe, you know, fish, and then they serve you beef or the other way around. Like, well, all my taste buds were lined up over here for this, and you just swapped it on me, and now I can't make the adjustment. Now, unless Some of you may be goat-like in the sense you eat anything, it doesn't matter. But some of us are a little bit more, well, okay, a lot more picky. But um, that's okay. It's a gift and a curse. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, there it stood, unable to nourish anybody. And the Lord withdraws his blessing. It withered and died. It was not vindictive. Again, it's prophetic. It's ministry taking place here. He's making points. He's teaching. Because they never forgot this. And that's a part of the proof that this had a purpose to it. A lasting purpose to this very day. I mean, the planet can spare a fig tree. 
um, in those days, if you shopped and you went to the store after you were finished, they, they were so concerned about the trees, they would ask, paper or plastic? And people would say, what's plastic? <laughs> well, you weren't there. You don't know. <laughs> Actually, Lebanon had, you know, was known for their trees. And, and, and well, we won't go, because trees can be very beautiful. So, uh, not vindictive, announcing the soon-to-come judgment on national life of the Jew in Israel. Within 40 years, the curse begins to show up. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And then, in 135 AD, at the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, Hadrian and the Romans... They put an end to Jewish... They are almost genocide. I mean, they wiped out whole village. I mean, how many Jews were killed? Hadrian just took the Temple Mount and flattened the thing. Put a Temple of Jupiter there with two images of Jupiter and one to himself. I mean, they just outlawed Jews coming into Jerusalem except once a year. Even the Christian Jews were banned from going into Jerusalem. It was very intense. They lost their land. And they were dispersed at a greater rate than ever before, even in the days of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And, of course, in 1948, they were brought back into their land, which was miraculous. Never happened ever. Nothing even close has a people been displaced from their homeland for 2,000 years, retained their heritage, their language, their traditions, and then brought back in the land and resumed their heritage, their language, and their traditions in the face of hell and earth. And that they don't know how much God is involved is irrelevant. What is relevant is God knows how much he is involved and his people know how much he is involved. Next time your faith takes a nosedive, remember Israel. It is miraculous. Well... Very soon afterward, the Lord is going to give a lesson on the end times. And he's going to bake into that lesson that Israel's not done. It's going to be here to the end. Mark chapter 13. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. He's talking about Israel. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And then he goes on to develop the end time scenario. The great tribulation period. The millennial reign of Christ. His withdrawal from the nation would not be permanent. Now we come back to those Old Testament images. The grapevine, for example, which represents Israel's history throughout its Old Testament days. Not only, but there is that in context, a lot of it. It anticipates the day. Well, it, it talks about the day that has already passed. The olive anticipates. Proverbs, uh, pardon me, Psalms. 80, verse 8, you have brought the vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. Oh, that vine is the nation of Israel. Now, there's a difference between the nation of Israel and the Jewish person that comes to Christ. Because that Jewish person that comes to Christ is ethnically still a Jew, but no longer a Jew nor a Gentile, but a Christian. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, Greek, Scythian, slave nor free. In God's eyes, you become his child. Then there's the olive tree in the Old Testament. That one anticipates a day that has not yet come. A day when the Jews will love their Messiah, will love Jesus Christ. Hosea chapter 14, verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from him. God had already expressed his dis dissatisfaction with the Jews through the prophet Hosea in their day. And now he's, Hosea is saying, but the day is going to come. He continues, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like a lily and lengthen his roots in Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and the fragrance like Lebanon. The fragrance that Paul talked about in Corinthians to the unbeliever. It's the fragrance of death. 
We, our message is that unless they repent, they are doomed in their sins. And then, of course, the fig tree, the fruitless fig tree, which symbolizes uh, Israel to this very day, the Christ-rejecting nation. And uh, the Jewish nation was formed to bear fruit unto God in the lives of people. It was supposed to be a spiritual attraction to the Gentile, a light to the world. That is what the prophets said. God speaking through them. Just like the church. The church has assumed this duty now. But they could not recognize their Messiah. Walking and working amongst them. Why not? Because they were to something else, to everything else, bottom line, too sinful to be interested in being faithful. They had reduced faithfulness to tradition because on the outside you can get away with it. You can have your ritual. Look, at you can have all the communion you want and your heart be wrong. You cannot have communion and your heart be right. I've got our brothers and sisters in countries where they can't even assemble in church because of the persecution on them. Some of them have never had communion. And yet their hearts are right with God. These are the things that God looks at, the heart, not the outside. Well, the heart should produce evidence of what's on the outside. That's why God looks at the heart, because he knows if the heart is right, there's going to be coming evidences, there's going to be leaves and fruit together. Verse 15, so they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money Changers and the seats of those who sold doves. I would love to have got the video on that one. Again, he surveyed verse 11 of this chapter. He came and he looked around at all things. At the start of his ministry, early in his ministry, he did this. He cleansed the temple. And now, at the end of his misery, because he's not going to survive the week, he's doing it again. It's like, in case you didn't get it the first time. In case you missed this lesson, John's Gospel, chapter 2, when he had made a whip of cords. Pause there. Where did he get the stuff to make the whip? Well, the hardware stores, right? (laughs) We know they had rock piles everywhere. Well, the cords that they used to bind the animals around the temple. He'd take three of them or so and just braid himself a whip. I mean, he was a builder by trade. He came up in the house of Joseph, a builder. He had skills. In fact, as created the universe, he could have just snapped his finger and had one. But uh, he he does it very deliberately so everybody can see it. John never forgot it. He said, I remember. He's like, what are you doing? (laughs) You'll find out in a minute. Don't be on the wrong side of this, John. He continues in John's gospel. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money. And overturned the tables. Now that was early in his ministry. Lord, may you never come to this church and have to bring a cord with you to whip, to drive out, to overturn tables. Uh, may you just always be, be very comfortable here and find us in total submission to your rule over our lives. Church is a big thing. Uh, Not to some Christians, but to hell, it's a very big thing. That's why he spends so much time trying to corrupt it. Why why are Christians oftentimes worse than worldlings? Because they are a higher value target. That's why. The world is on self-destruct. You're not. Your flesh will, of course, be uh, ready to destroy you. But... This is why Satan targets believers. This is why churches are problematic. And this is what takes away excuses from those who flee. We are not supposed to be shot in the back, running away from the battlefield. We are supposed to be shot in the front, charging the battlefield. Sounds very glorious, right? (laughs) You know, all right, enough of that. He is both Lord of the harvest and he is Lord of the house. He is Lord of all, over all, or not at all. 
And if he is not Lord at all, then you are going to find that he is Lord of all. Every knee shall bow. Every t- I love talking about Jesus. I love talking about his majesty. I hate it when I mess up. I like it more when you mess up and not me. <laughs> it's true, though. I don't, who wants to mess up? We want to serve him. We will fall at his feet. We want to lay hold of him like Mary Magdalene when she saw Rabboni. I love the Lord. And I know you do too. Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried out to my God. And he heard my voice from his temple. And my cry came before him even to his ears. There it is. His temple. That's where he is right now. But he's going to disown them. And he's going to bring that out in a moment. But this uh, was very deliberate in the early uh, days when he first did it, it is very deliberate now. It says here in verse 15, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple from fruitlessness to corruption. He goes from a fruitless tree to corrupting churchgoers. Now, there was no church, but to make it match our day, the day we live in, to make it relevant to us, these were churchgoers. Later, He defies the corrupted pastors, the shepherds of the people. It says here in verse 15, And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Well, they were selling doves for sacrifice, and they were being sold to the poor. The poor, in God's word, the Lord said, If you can't offer up a sheep or oxen, I'll take turtle doves. They're everywhere. You can, you can set a trap for them and catch them. Uh, but here, they were selling them because at a rip-off rate. Your dove's not good enough. You've got to buy But I'm poor. Got to have this one. They didn't do it to everyone, but they did to enough of the people. But the money changes. The monetary exchange made necessary and corrupted uh, by Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas, who were the high priests. They were getting a cut from this racket. They demanded the Tyrian, uh, the Tyrian shekel from Tyre because the Roman money had only 84% silver. But this Tyrian shekel had 94% or more silver in it. It was worth more. And so you couldn't bring the cheap stuff. It wasn't even the Jewish shekel. You had to bring the, the, the good stuff to the temple. Because they could do more with it. So you'd be getting a loss when you made this conversion. If you had money. So I live out in the empire. I come all the way from, you know, some place in Syria. I don't have the uh, Tyrrhenian shekel. Well, you're going to have to get one at the exchange. Okay, why does it have to be at the temple? Why does it have to be run by the priest? See, that's the racket. The same with the doves and the sheep. Why can't I go elsewhere and bring one? Why, why do, if I can't lug one all the way from Spain, maybe I can pick up one in Galilee. No, you have to get it here. They had a monopoly. Jesus saw it all. They weren't serving the people. They were serving themselves. And this angered him. He was hot. Make no mistake. When he guards, after he flips the tables, he stands there. He's ready for Who doesn't like it? <laughs> He's defiant. The dissatisfaction of Christ. Uh, They serve themselves. Psalms 10. The psalmist says, The wicked is in his proud countenance does not seek God. Because he doesn't need him in his head. He says this, God is in none of his thoughts. Do you think the true God was in the thoughts of those people while they were ripping off the poor, the rich, the middle class, whoever came? Of course not. Their heads were elsewhere. Here's a dictionaries, one of the dictionaries, definitions of racket. An illegal or dishonest money-making scheme involving activities such as bribery, fraud, or intimidation. You can add to that monopoly. They were the only show in town. And, it, and, and God is just saying to the church, I hate this kind of stuff. And I'm going to show you. I'm not gonna, I don't have to tell you. You already know it. But evidently, that's not enough for some people. So I'm going to illustrate it. I'm going to act it out. And so, if one wanted to draw the wrath of this, of this 
monopoly, this priesthood, this cartel of priests, all they had to do was what he's doing. Step onto the temple grounds and defy their racket. Take money out of their pockets. They licensed and they controlled, they orchestrated, they maintained this racket. And he is going to provoke them on purpose. He's going to say, what are you going to do, kill me? And they are. They're just going to get up and spoil the whole thing for them. Maybe wasted on them, but not wasted on others. They centered this monopoly at God's house. In the New Testament, this stuff's still going on. So much so, Paul has to tell Timothy, be, be, watch out for this stuff in the church. First Timothy 6, verse 5. Men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, draw, from such withdraw yourself. Isn't that... You, you would think the prosperity teachers would read that verse and know, know what it means, but it's too greedy to read it, to see what the meaning is of the Spirit. Okay, is that a little bit over the top? Because <laughs> I've got some more. I could have hit it a little harder. I think it is shameful, but you know, why do they survive? Because not only are they greedy in the pulpit, they're greedy in the pew. That's why. It takes two to tango. And the people said, we're not going to come here and tithe to this church. They'd go out of business, but they do go to those churches because they think if they tithe, they're going to put a seed offering in and get some little boom baby cash from it. Well, to each their own, said the lady as she kissed the cow. I kind of remember it that way. I my mom. I, my mom used to say that to me. Well, to each their own, the ladies, well, who would kiss a cow? Well, I'm, I'm sure you, anyway, okay. Verse 16, my mother, not me, okay? Lay off. Don't be talking about my mama. <laughs> verse 11, uh, verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. He stood guard. He flips the tables. You can see them scurrying to pick up the money, scurrying to get the birds back in the cages, scurrying to get the lamb. In the it's a madhouse there. And nobody can stop him. How come the temple authorities didn't come in and deal with him? Because it's a miracle. That's why. Both times. When he deals business out at the temple, it, you and I couldn't do it and survive. He did twice. So their view of the temple had plunged out of the sight of godliness and became this, this monstrosity. No longer holiness to the Lord. You know, the high priest was supposed to have that as a banner on his hat. Holiness to the Lord. When you saw him, you were supposed to be impressed by a man that was able to talk to God in places you could not. Those days were gone. Instead of holiness to the Lord, it was profit, it was profane, it was personal gain. Ecclesiastes 5.1, which was in existence at this time. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. That's why they're fools. They don't want to know. You know, when the Bible talks about fools in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's talking about people who have the aptitude. They just opt out. Well, again, not a political protest. This was a spiritual counterattack. It was a spiritual cleansing. They were wrong, not him. He is not wrong. He is not the villain. Again, Psalm 5. But as for me... I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy in fear of you. I will worship toward your holy temple. That reverence was not present on the highest levels of their religion. Their high priest and their deputy high priest. Those two men will have a big say-so in murdering their own Messiah. Verse 17 then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? This is a composite quotation from Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah 7. And uh, he is saying, This is the scriptural basis for my behavior. I'm, this is not just... He could have just said, you know, I, I make an edict right here, right now. But he doesn't do that. 
He says, this is scriptural. Probably could have said, why haven't one of you done this earlier? Well, there actually the prophets have worded that. Uh, where is the man to stand up? But we'll, we'll, that would take too much time to go into. So, he, he wants them to understand that there's a connection between all his behavior and all the scripture said. Luke 21, 38 says that they got there early in the morning. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I'm connecting that with verse 17 in that he is teaching the people because they wanted to hear him. They had an appetite for God's word. They could sit and listen to God's word taught by God's man. Uh, Many of them did not know the ins and outs of who he was, his birth in Bethlehem, things like that, like we do. They were just listening to his teachings and aware of his miracles, and he had their undivided attention. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. At the beginning of his ministry, he called the temple of God my father's house. In John 2.16, where he flipped the tables over the first time. This is my father's house. Here at the end of his ministry, where he still says my house, but not my father's house. It's my house. You see what's happening here? He's departing. He's withdrawing. From such people, withdraw yourselves. Then, finally, to the corrupt leaders of Israel, he says, Your house is left to you desolate. Your house. And that's not strict chronology, but that is still the movement of his language. Where else does this kind of behavior show up? In Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw the Shekinah of God leave the temple of Solomon in stages. He moved out of the tabernacle, moved a little further away across the valley until it was out of sight. In phases. What is that? It's the reluctance of God. It's God saying, I don't want to do this. This is not what I had in mind. The backslider knows about that. The backslider knows God says, this is not what I want. I don't want you sliding backwards. I want you moving forward or at least standing your ground. And many backsliders come back to Christ. He says, but you have made it a den of thieves. What a corruption. This is something that should never have happened. It sent matters over the top with Christ. So when he is standing guard, again, that's a righteous indignation. He is hot. If you were to walk up at that moment, you would not walk up to him at that moment and ask him, change for a dollar. Or you you wouldn't ask him anything. You would say, this man is not to be approached right now. Because again, he was hot. It was a righteous, he was not in the flesh, not at all. Totally in the spirit. When fire and brimstone began to rain on Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, God was, no pun intended, it was hot anger. It was not casual. It was not something done. You could see that smoke from miles away. You knew that there was something big taking place, and it was the judgment of God. The disciples, as do churchgoers to this day, wondered if it was wise for him to be provocative. Should he have provoked the establishment? Pastor, should you have said that? That he had dealt with this before. Jesus knew it was unwise to provoke God. So he didn't care. Uh, Well, he did care. But he did not care enough to suppress the righteous indignation that he was going out with at this critical moment. And if we look at these passages carefully, it has an impact on us. Verse 18, Then and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. You bet they were astonished at his teaching. What did you know about teaching? You wouldn't teach God's word. You're preoccupied with your greed and your, your smokescreen traditions. He publicly disapproved and defied the apostate authorities and their word about Rome. How are we going to deal with this public figure and not bring the ire of Rome down on us? He says, because all the people were astonished at his teachings. 
what about us? What about you who've been walking with Christ for a long time? You've heard teachings on almost every book of the Bible, if not all of them. Are you still astonished at his teaching through his anointed or not? One of the protections a pastor's get is he doesn't have to be the smartest person in the church. He just has to be the anointed one in the pulpit. And that we are supposed to love. Verse 18 And the scribes, the chief priests, heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Verse 19, when evening had come, he went out of the city. Nothing more to do for that day, but he's coming back. Verse 20, now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. It's now Tuesday. And uh, the tree could not exist, life could not exist without his maintained blessing. He is the creator and the sustainer. He is not a deadbeat dad who creates children and walks away from them, having no good influence on them whatsoever. God created the universe and he maintains the universe. He he upholds the universe, Colossians 1 verse 17 And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. They are held together. The atoms, he could just let them explode, and you know what would happen then. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, again, the deity of Christ. You can say that about no other, no created being can have that said about them and not be laughed at to their face who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. It then connects it to his death for us on the cross. But he upholds it. Well, for this fig tree, he stopped upholding it. And it died. Verse 21, And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Peter, they go by the next day and they catch a glimpse of this dead thing. That was once just the foliage on it was just robust and verdant. And now this thing is dead. Trees don't die overnight. You can cut a tree down in, in the spring. And next spring, if the stump is left, it can still sprout. You see the bud turn green. There's still sap in it. There's life. Well, what was part of life. They don't die overnight. I don't care what you pour on it. Uh, Adam bomb <laughs> wouldn't just blow it up. And it wouldn't. Well, Never mind. It shows what I know about physics. This, uh, I, uh, they don't die overnight. It is a miracle judgment. In fact, in Mark, Math, I mean Matthew, Matthew 21, Matthew says the disciples said it's dead so soon. That's Matthew 21, verse 20. So when he cursed the tree, it was not wasted on these men. They heard him say it, and they probably just dismissed it, but they never forgot it once they saw that tree dead. And the Hebrew people had become God's greatest hindrance instead of God's greatest help. Oh, may it never be the church. May this church, may no church that loves the Lord ever move from being a help to God to becoming a hindrance to God. And there is such a thing as wrath of the Lamb and no one can withstand it. One pastor of long ago said, if we fail to answer the ministry of his love, we must be blasted by the ministry of his judgment. He's commenting on this verse. What a powerful comment that is. The tree was the symbol, but the nation was what was on his mind and his eyes and on his heart. Verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Well, I would like to keep going, but I don't want to force this section. Scott, I hope you didn't print out the labels already. <laughs> Sorry, it's not my fault. You might want to take that up with management. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to rush through because this is one of, for me personally, in my earlier years, there would be times when I would go to this verse and just have faith in God. I don't know what's happening. I don't like it. I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. And I would think of this verse. And now, I'm not going to say anything profound about it, I don't think. Well, we'll find out next week. So, if you're not here next week, we'll be uh, taking attendance starting next week. And we should pray. Um, 
We've stopped, uh, for those of you who keep record of those things, uh, Scott and uh, the men and women serving, it will stop at verse 21, and I, I don't know how I'm going to get it all together next week. Let's pray. Our Father, line upon line, precept upon precept, your love is declared to us, but so is your wisdom, so is your knowledge. You see how weak we are, how prone to failure we are spiritually, everything from pride to self assurance instead of blessed assurance, various forms of lust. All these things you see, and yet you have given us a salvation that where sin abounded, grace did much more. And you forgive us, and you love us no less. You love us for all eternity. But there may be some that are listening or watching. You do not have this benefit from the creator of the heavens and the earth. And there is only one. His name is Jesus. And if you do not have the salvation that he offers, he considers you doomed, lost in your sins, and you will perish. And by perish, he means that you will vanish from the presence of God in heaven, and you will your name will vanish out of the Lamb's book of life, and you will find yourself in condemnation forever. To avoid that, all you need to do is submit to him. Come to him. Recognize that his love is not to be wasted. Receive his invitation. If you make this prayer in earnest, then God will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws, violated your commandments. I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else who is great enough and worthy to come to, to be forgiven, and to find life and life eternal. And I give you my life right now, and I ask you to forgive me, and from this day forward, to be the one that not only saves my soul, but rules over my life. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may you lock it in. May Satan not come and snatch away the seeds And may they not be ashamed of their newfound testimony. And may they draw closer and closer to you. And these things we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.